Good morning, Redemption Tempe. My name is Jim Mullins. I'm one of the pastors here, and I wanted to just welcome you here this morning for our time of corporate worship. We get to live out our faith before the face of God all week long and in every place we go, but this is a special time where we can come together, we can sing together, we can be shaped by God's word, by uh, taking communion, and just worship him together, so this is good. Uh, To start off, I have a few announcements. The first announcement is, I just peeked in the back of the turkey truck, and our turkey drive is going pretty well. I think we're kind of on pace here. It's looking like it might actually be a bad day for turkeys, but a good day for families in Arizona, which is good. But I think it would be wonderful if we could just blow that out of the water. So if you haven't had an opportunity to participate, you can feel free to go get a turkey and come back later today. We'll be back at 5 p.m. and at 7 p.m. And uh, we're just going to keep stacking turkeys in the back of that truck there so we can give them away. So that's pretty exciting. Um, The second thing I wanted to announce is also somewhat related to Thanksgiving. Um, And it's this. We just need to... We need a, a day. We need a day of fasting to where, to where we can say thank you to God. I just want to update you on some things that are going on in this congregation. Um, God is working. The Spirit is moving in people's lives. Uh, we've been able to see a number of people come to know Jesus. People are, are uh, being broken from, from a real uh, struggle, uh, slavery to sin in many ways. We're seeing people get healed and, and, and doctors working in some pretty powerful ways. We, we've seen people just get a bigger vision for um, who God is and how they can live before him and live for his glory in the marketplace. And we have just sensed that the Spirit is doing some good things here. Not because of anything we're doing, but because our good God is just lavishing his love on us and his grace on us. So we thought it would be good if we took a day of fasting and we spent that day saying thank you to God for what he's done. And instead of eating, using the hunger pains to remind us of the gratitude that we have for God and saying we are hungry for, what, for more of what God is doing. And so we're going to uh, organize a day of fasting on November 29th. You may know that as Black Friday, but we would like to say that that will be Fast Friday. (laughs) Um, The reason why we think that's an important day is it's kind of close to Thanksgiving, but it's also a day when there are many things in the world that say, you need more stuff, you need more stuff. In many ways, a new gospel is being put out there, a gospel of stuff. But what we want to say on that day is, no, we don't need more stuff, we need more of Jesus. So this isn't uh, prohibiting you from from shopping that day. Um, Maybe buy some gifts for family. But as you shop, live with the hunger pains that remind you that Jesus is better. So we're going to basically fast through the first two meals of the day, breakfast and lunch. And then at dinner, we're going to encourage you to get together with some other people and break the fast. Maybe have like a a leftover feast where you bring leftovers from Thanksgiving and you break the fast. But spend that day thanking God and saying, we want more of Jesus and he has been so good to us. So that's what we're doing on the 29th. Speaking of the goodness of Jesus, his goodness doesn't just exist in this room, but it exists in every sphere of life. 
And that's why we do these all-of-life interviews, to show models of people who are living out their faith in the marketplace, in uh, places of recreation, and living before the face of God, doing things for his glory. So we're going to do that again today, and I'm going to go ahead and welcome up Mike Giles. And would you go ahead and give him a hand? So, Mike, thank you for letting us ask you a few questions here. Yeah, sure. Uh, first of all, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do? Okay. Uh, I'm the co-founder of a graphic design studio called Monomyth. We do everything from identity and branding to websites to product packaging. That's great. So uh, we talk a lot about the importance of reflecting who God is, some aspect of his character through work, through everything we do. What does that look like for you? Uh, well, for us, uh, it plays out in striving for excellence. Um, the easy correlation is God created, we as artists create. But he didn't just make things, he made things good. He made the best things. Uh, so we strive for that level of excellence. To, for us, good enough isn't good enough. That's good. So um, I want to ask you a question. A lot of times when it comes to design, uh, I'm, I sort of have a question of how is design an act of love? How does it help people, uh, human beings, just flourish? Why is it important? <laughs> uh, design is important because design is everything. Everything you interact with, everything you use, everything you look at throughout the day has been designed by someone. Um, and at, at its core, it's not, it's not making things pretty, it's, it's the act of problem solving. So it's really what we're trying to do is we're trying to find the best solutions to make people's lives better. That's good. Uh, how can we be praying for you and for other people in your field? Uh, I would pray for endurance, for one. Half of what we have to do is explaining why it's important, um, which can be an uphill battle. Um, so I'd also just pray for good boundaries between work and home life. Uh, I genuinely love what I get to do, um, but it's not something that I can switch off. And I, I've talked to a lot of people that have the same problem, and it's difficult to go home and not stop thinking about it. That's great. You can see some of his stuff on the screen there. Um, let me go ahead and ask, are, if you are involved with any sort of design, we would love to pray for you and to pray for Mike. So would you go ahead and raise your hands so, just so we can see who you are? All right, good. Well, let's pray. Father, I thank you for the way that you have created us in your image. And that image is reflected by people like Mike and many others who uh, design things. You are the ultimate and original designer, and we pray that in everything they do, they would reflect you. They would do it with excellence and, and do it in a way that contributes to the good of their neighbor. That they would genuinely love when they, when they sit down with pen in hand and begin to, to draw and to design things. We pray that you would bless them, that you'd bless their mind, that you'd bless their, their eye, that you'd bless their hand, so that they would be a blessing to many. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, you guys think that again? Thanks, Hey, if this is your first time here, my name is Ricardo Stewart, and I'm one of the pastors here. I'm glad you could be here with us this morning. Uh, we are going to be continuing our series on Romans for this week and next week, and we'll take a break and um, do Advent and then pick up, up in uh, January. But today we'll be in Romans chapter 7. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 13. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand, and then someone will be, be able to get you a copy of God's Word. Again, just hold your hand up and keep it raised really high. 
And if you don't own a copy, um, please keep the copy that we are handing out so that you guys can uh, read God's Word together. Um, well, briefly, real quick, before we jump into God's Word, this really has nothing to do with anything we're going to talk about today, and maybe not even anything to do with your lives, but I'm going to share it anyway. Last night, ASU beat Oregon State University, which, which I'm excited about that, but I'm going to say something today that I don't think I've ever said, and may never say again, but for this week, I'm going to be the biggest U of A football fan that I've ever been for this reason. If ASU does work in L.A. next week at the Rose Bowl, of which I just might, yeah, I'm going to be there, um, and U of A beats Oregon, that means we potentially have an opportunity to have the Pac-12 championship here in Tempe, which would be good for the city and everything else and, uh, and for me. So <laughs> as you pray this week, uh, <laughs> if the Lord so places it on your heart, pray for both the U of A and the ASU. And, so, go U of A. <laughs> All right, Romans chapter 7. Um, this is where we're going to be at today. Um, we are going to look at this chapter and what I said a couple weeks ago, and I'm still sticking with that. This is easily one of the most confusing chapters in Romans, perhaps in all of the New Testament. And the point that Paul is trying to make is not that confusing. It's how he continues to go back and forth uh, from Romans chapter 7, 1, all the way to the end of the chapter. Um, Paul asks a lot of questions, and, and it, it seems as if um, that he's saying the law is the problem, but he's not. In fact, the point that Paul is saying is the law is not the issue, sin is the issue. Again, the law is not the issue, sin is the issue. Um, over the past several weeks, in the um, past few weeks as we've been looking at the few chapters here in Romans 5, 6, and 7, Paul has been saying that now we, those who are in Christ Jesus, are under this reign of grace. That God has so loved us in his son by giving us Jesus and wrapped us up into the love of the Father by the Holy Spirit. And now the law doesn't have this binding on us anymore. And so last week Paul says we are free from the law. We are dead to the law. And what Paul begins to do now in chapter 7 verse, seven, uh, verse 7, he says, Now, is the law the problem? Is the law what made me sin? Because he knows that his original audience would have thought that Paul is, thinking, is saying that the law is the reason why we sin. And he goes, absolutely not. The law had a purpose, and the law serves a purpose. And he gives a few of those purposes here uh, this, in this, um, this, these two verses we have this morning. It's not an exhaustive list, but he shows the purpose of the law, but he's saying the law is not the issue. Sin is the issue. And so the things the law reveals or the purpose that we have is, one, it reveals the um, presence of sin, so it points to the presence of sin in our life. Um, it reveals the perversity of sin in our hearts and how it affects us. And then lastly, it reveals the problem of sin. So the presence, the perversity, and then the problem of sin. And so that's what we'll pick up this morning. In verse 7, Paul says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Um, since it's almost Christmas time and we'll be starting Advent here soon, I think it's good that we start telling Christmas stories. And uh, one Christmas I'll never forget is that my, my mom brought home these presents. And it was probably three weeks before Christmas and they were all wrapped up. And then she set them under the tree and then she looked at my brother, my sister and I and said, do not open these presents. Right? And there were all other, there's a bunch of other presents that were already underneath the tree that she never said that about. But these particular presents, he says, do not open these presents. 
And you know, like I know, that as soon as my mom said that, as those words traveled through space and time, and they came into our ears, it said, open these presents. Like, please open these presents, right? And so for the next three weeks before Christmas, my brother and my sister and I were walking by these presents under the tree. And those particular ones, I, kn- I didn't care about the other presents. As soon as she said, don't do that, it was like, oh, no, I think she wants me to do it, right? <laughs> and I'd walk by the presents, and, and I would be like, you know, go open it. And like, and like, no, 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 like, yeah, 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 you know, it's like a destiny child song just like being reenacted like right and so this is this like I really wanted to open it so what happened is my brother my sister and I we all went at these presents but in three different ways my sister first she was 15 she was the oldest she went and she shook it and she tried to see what the different presents were and she stepped away from it my brother actually like tore a little piece and this is just my brother as soon as he did that he went and told my mom you won't believe what I did like that's just like totally my brother telling on himself and everybody else right <laughs> me I was the youngest I was I believe eight or nine at this time and so I just went to it and just opened it right <laughs> right and I was like oh you already started it I'll finish it I'm a finisher right and so I opened up the presents and my mom had lied to us and said that they were gifts that were given to her from her students as she was a teacher. And so, but it wasn't. It was a radio, like a stereo that we wanted to play our music with. And then it was also uh, a Super Nintendo, which, you know, that's a long time ago. And we were really, really excited, only that we did what we weren't supposed to do. And we were caught. And when my mom began to talk to us about it, my excuse was, listen, um, you told us not to do it. And as a mother, being as smart as you are, mom, um, you should know that as soon as you tell someone not to do something, that usually makes them want to do it all the more. So in essence, you're in trouble. <laughs> right? This is your fault, right? <laughs> so you should have known that. I, I share that story because I do believe that, that try to just clarify what Paul's saying here, that, that's what he's saying. He, he's saying the issue was not that God gave the law which said, do these things as you live in response to God's love, and then don't do these things as you live in response to God's love. That the problem was not the law, the problem was our sin. And that the law actually gave opportunity for our sin to show itself. That it was able to point to the presence and name sin, and and also the perversity, how it grows into the problem, and how deep and wide is sin in this world. And so Paul begins to show this purpose of the law and saying, it's not the law. It's your sin, and it's my sin. And he says, what shall we say? That the law is sin? He goes, by no means. What we've said is when Paul has been asking this question, he asked it in the beginning of verse 6, in the middle of, excuse me, of chapter 6, in the middle of chapter 6, he asked it in the beginning of chapter 7. He asked it again now in chapter 7, verse 7, and it's this, this question of saying, should we do what we want? Is it the law's fault? And he goes, by no means. He's literally saying, heck no. Like, that's not it at all. And he says this, yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin Season and opportunity through the commandment produce in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. He said it, the law points to the presence of sin in our life. It names it. Paul says it's not the law because it's me. 
Because I didn't even even know what this was until I read the law. And when I read the law and I saw the law, it pointed out this particular sin in me. And, and And that's what the law does. The law names it. It's not that we don't know that there's sin. We may not name it as sin, but there's not a person in this room or in this world that wouldn't say something's wrong with this world. Uh, Something's wrong with the structures of this world. Something's wrong with the people of this world. Then you go on and on until you realize, you know what? Something's wrong with me. And and Paul is saying, when it points it out, I, I didn't even know that I had an issue until I read the law and it revealed to me what covetousness was. And then I begin, to, then sin, seizing the opportunity, never blames the law. He says, it's not the law. It's not the imperatives of Scripture. It's the sin that lies in me. And then read with me here as, as he says again in verse, verse 8. He goes, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. You know what this is like? It's like when people, um, when someone tells you, hey, whatever you do, don't look down. What do you do? Oh, you just don't talk. <laughs> so when, I, so when, I, when someone asks you, hey, when someone says, hey, you know, don't, don't look down, what do you usually do? Thank you, guys. Thank you. Appreciate it. That's how we conversate. You look down. It's almost like it would have been better if they would have said not to. Now, here's what Paul, Paul is. Paul's not saying that the law is the issue. You know what we need to do? We need to not show the law to people. Because if we reveal the law to people, it actually hoses them. Because, no, the problem's already there. It just reveals even more when someone says don't look down. You're like, oh, no. Oh, I want to do it all the more because now it's actually revealed it. There's a problem. And, and here's what Paul says here. And this is, again, one of the things that can seem confusing. At the end of verse 8, he says, For apart from the law, sin lies dead. And at first glance, it seems like Paul's saying, If the law wasn't there, you wouldn't even have sin. And if that were the case, I'd close my Bible and say, Don't tell anybody else about the law, right? You hose them. Don't, don't just... Just keep going, right? No. When he says that sin lies dead, what he's talking about is it's it's latent or it's unrealized. Like it's there lurking, but it hasn't had the opportunity to to, to jump out, right? So one of the things that I love to do in my household as the leader of my household, the spiritual leader, is uh, set examples of things that my sons should do when they get older. So what I love to to do is, is when my wife doesn't know I'm in the house, like hide behind the couch, or behind things and jump out and rah, and just scare and just to see her face like, you know that, that face you get? You, don't you love seeing someone just being completely scared, right? That's kind of sick, I know. But I love doing it. And more things are caught than taught. Some of the things, you don't have to teach your kids how to do certain things. They just catch it. Because now when I come home, my kids try to hide from me and try to catch me. And they're not any good. Because if you know, like, kids, kids are terrible at hide-and-go-seek. Like, when my kids hide, I'm like, I wonder where they are. And the youngest was like, we're in the room. It's like, <laughs> he doesn't get it yet, right? But what I do is when I try to scare my wife and my kids, it's like, I'm there. They just don't know it yet. And I just, as soon as the opportunity is there, I jump out. You know what's sad? And I didn't share this last hour. As I start doing it to the pastors around here. And many of your pastors have peed on themselves. And now Jim Mullins is doing it to other people. So, like, part of our ministry is, like, who can scare people, right? <laughs> there, 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 there's a sense where, where sin is just latent. And he says when it's dead, it's, it's latent. It's there. It's just waiting for the opportunity. The law points it out. It points out the present. Now, Paul uses a, a specific sin here, and he uses covet. 
but what you'll see is that um, it doesn't just point to the presence of sin, but the law also reveals the perversity of sin in our life. Read with me in, in verse 9. It says, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seasoned an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it, it killed me. Paul says, I once was alive. And he goes, what do you mean you were alive? Here's, here's what I believe Paul is saying. Is that Paul grew up as a Hebrew person, as a Jewish man, and so it wasn't that the law was new to him. The law was something he would have been taught again and again and again, and he would have known God's law. If you weren't here last week, we talked about how the law of God was something that God gave in response to his redemptive act in the Old Testament which his most redeeming act in the Old Testament was the Exodus, in which God lovingly and graciously and miraculously rescued his people out of Egypt. And before he brought them into the promised land, he gave them my identity. He says, you are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, meaning you are to mediate between God and the world, and you are set apart for that purpose. In order for you to do that in response to my love, here's this law. And so we read about the Ten Commandments in Exodus. And then the laws that he gives them in Leviticus. And then also how he reaffirms those laws in Deuteronomy and how to live as a nation set apart for God that the other nations would come to know God. And so Hebrew people knew this law. But the law in itself was holy. It revealed who God's character was. And it revealed our character, which was very inconsistent with the character of who God was. And so Paul knew this. And it's interesting that he, he lists just one of the Ten Commandments. And the commandment that he, that he mentions is that to not covet. And the reason why I think that is Paul knew how to obey and knew how to live externally. And so if you look through the Ten Commandments, you say, okay, don't worship other gods. And he goes, I worship Yahweh, the only God. And he goes, okay, don't steal. He goes, I don't steal. I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't, I, I don't, I don't, um, um, I don't have my neighbor's wife as my wife. I don't murder anybody. So externally he's saying, I'm okay. He goes, apart from this, I was okay. And now talking contextually in our context is that there are many of you in this room, many of us that, that attend a church service, that we are okay because externally we know exactly what to do. Like there are quote-unquote big sins and gross sins that we go, we want to stay away from those. And so we, we put different things up, barriers that, that keep us from going there. And so we are able to obey externally, do all the good things, and then we think we're okay. When some of you, you're, you're, just, you're just sweethearts by nature. Like you just, you just comply. You just know how to do the right things. And, and there's a reality that you could be doing all the right things. Hear me. You could be doing all the right things of which you see in the scripture or whatever law you have made. Even if you're not a Christian, right? There's always laws that we make. Um, that you can have a particular set of standards in which you live by, and you can live by those things externally, and you can feel as yourself you are a good person because of these external things of which you've done or you've, uh, you've abstained from. And Paul says, I, that once used to be me. There once used to be a moment when externally I thought just by, by being a good person and by going to church services and by giving to the church and giving to the poor and um, just staying away from these gross sins, and I would be okay. But he says, but this is what sin did. It actually produced something in me. It seized the opportunity in me. And it showed me what covetousness was, and it produced all the more. What Paul is saying is it showed the perversity of sin. And perversity is when you desire something, have affections for something. Now hear me. 
Desires and affections are not bad. They're God-given. Sin begins to affect, affect our desires and our affections, and they're bent towards other things. And therefore, when the law reveals a perversity, as we see in Paul's life, is he saying, not only did I realize that I wasn't supposed to do it, now that I know that I wasn't supposed to do it, I wanted to do it all the more because I wasn't supposed to do it. Meaning, this, this ideal of perversity is saying, I want to do the thing only because it's forbidden. And I don't know if you guys have ever had that moment in your life where someone tells you, hey, don't do that. And you're going, ooh, so you're saying do it, right? And, and, and all you think about is, I only want to do it because you said not to. And that, that's that perversity. In fact, um, St. Augustine, who wrote a book, Confessions, which is a really good book, he talks about this as a young kid, um, this experience of him doing something and, and explaining what Paul was saying, and the, the quote's going to come up here. It says, in a garden nearby to our, to our vineyard, there was a pear tree loaded with fruit that was desirable neither in appearance nor in taste. Late one night, a group of bad youngsters set out to shake down and rob this tree. We took great loads of the fruit from it, not for our own eating, but rather to throw it to the pigs. We did this to do what pleased us, for the reason it was forbidden. For I stole a thing of which I had plenty of my own and much better quality, nor did I wish to enjoy that which I desired to gain, but rather to enjoy the actual theft and the sin of theft. He said, this is how bad it is. That the perversity of sin is we will even look at something, and because we see it as sin, that we will try even harder to get it. Um, we, it, it creates in us um, not the law in itself, but it reveals in us the perversity of our own hearts, of our own lives. I have a friend of mine who is leading a church, and he talks about when he first became a Christian I'm in college or through, through a campus ministry and how this particular campus ministry took them in and began to walk with them God's plan of sexuality and what sex was and, and so forth. And he says that up until this point, he had never been sexually active, had never really thought about those things. He knew kind of what the Bible taught. But now that he saw what the Bible um, had, for, you know, in the sense forbidden, he said, now after that, he goes, that's all I thought about. He goes, up until that moment, um, up until that moment, I never thought about those things. And then after that, I prided myself on someone who was so pure. And then after that, that's all I thought about. And I looked at him and I said, you mean to tell me it wasn't until you were 20 years old that you never thought about sex? The commandments also say, thou shalt not lie, right? But I'm going to take him at his word, right? And so he says, at this moment, like he goes, it just, it just opened up. And we've had things like that before in our life. I know for me, as a, as a new Christian, there were certain things that I never thought about as a Christian, and when I read them in the scripture, and now they became, I wanted them more, even though God had said, no, these things will hurt you, and these things will hurt others. Paul's saying, that's just the perversity of it. And another twist that we use the law for in, in our perversity is not just sexual sin, but some of us use it as a measuring rod, much like Paul, before he knew Jesus. That the way that we define our identity, the way we even sometimes define our emotional well-being is how well we are doing in accordance to God's scripture. Meaning how well we are acting. And so, that's, so if we are obeying the right way, if we are doing the right things, then we stand before God emotionally. We feel fine because we've done the right things, not because he is good and what he's done for us. 
So we feel, like we feel superior to other people. On the flip side, if we have not lived up to whatever standards we have, whether they're biblical standards or whatever standards you have, and whatever religion that you find yourself in or a religion that you're not in, if you're not living up to those particular standards, you feel inferior because you haven't lived up to those things. So basically, it's about you. It's about what you could do. And that is exactly what sin does. Sin twists and distorts in order that it turns us away from God and turns our eyes in on ourself. That we become a law unto ourselves. We've been saying that that's what happened with Adam and Eve. They became a law unto themselves. They became autonomous being. They thought it would be best to be autonomous being. Our culture now says it is best to be autonomous beings. What works for you works for you. And if it comes to religion or you trust in Christ, people will say, I'm glad that works for you. That's what you have decided. And so we become this law unto ourselves. And Paul says the law that points to the presence of sin, but it also points to the perversity that's in us of sin and what it does to us. Um, Paul, Paul um, says another line here in verse 12, communicating that the law is still good. Verse, verse 12, he says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Because it's good because it reveals who God's character is. God's character is never revealed to us so that we can measure up to it. God's character in the Bible is never revealed to us so that we can figure out how we can, we can get better to be more like God. It's revealed to us for the purpose of the law. God gave the law in the midst of a broken world. That we would realize how holy he is, how loving he is, how just he is, and how we are not. And so Paul says, listen, the rules that we see in scripture, these things are not something to trip us up. These are good. In fact, one one pastor says it this way. He says, if you want to know the difference between biblical Christianity and every other religion, is every other religion is basically instructions. Sprinkled with stories only to illustrate the instructions. He goes, well, that Christianity is a story sprinkled with illustrations and instructions only to illustrate the story. What he's saying is there's some beautiful instructions. There's some beautiful rules. So we can't just say Christianity has no rules. What we said last week, it's those rules don't save you. Um, those things don't save you. He says they have beautiful rules like turn the other cheek, that you uh, shouldn't steal, that you shouldn't murder. He goes, but those things are meaningless unless the story is true. Meaning, if our God didn't create this world and sin and, um, and Adam did not bring uh, sin and affect the entire world, then Christ wasn't redeeming all of creation and taking it towards its intended purposes. If he didn't live, die, and was raised, he goes, and all of those things are meaningless. Meaning, you don't do those things in order to earn favor from this God. You already have favor and love from this God. Therefore, you do those things. And Paul is saying the law is good. It just doesn't redeem The law points to sin and says it's there, there's a presence. It points to the perversity. But what he also shows us is that the law points to the problem of sin. And probably the biggest problem of sin is that we don't realize how big it is. And we don't realize how bad it is. And we don't realize how broad it is. We don't realize how deep it is. Here's what Paul says here in verse 13 talking about the problem of sin. He says, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond all measure. What he's saying is um, it was not the law. It was the law that revealed something, the presence, the perversity, and the problem that through what is good, what sin did is sin now became allies with the law. It used the law. 
Because that's what sin does. Sin is like a parasite. It can only latch itself on something that is good, on something that is alive. And it begins to twist and dislocate and spoil, but it can never completely destroy God's good creation. That sin that we see is something that has affected all of creation from the very beginning and we see in Genesis. And that sin is something that has affected all of the structures that we see in our world. All the way down to that sin affects every single individual. The problem is, we usually start talking about sin with the individual instead of seeing what it's done with the whole world. And we're going to talk more about that as we get into Advent. And what happens is that when we see the problem of sin, we have reduced sin so small that basically we say sin is simply doing wrong things. That sin is doing wrong things. Adam and Eve's problem is that they did wrong things, and that's what sin is reduced to. And therefore, um, salvation becomes God giving us Christ to forgive us of doing wrong things and then giving us a spirit so we can do better things. So Christianity just becomes basically this, this very divine, by grace, behavior modification. Like at best, we trust that God does the work, but Christianity in itself, salvation, good news is Christ came to forgive us for doing bad things. He gives us the Spirit so now we can do good things. And most of us, we look at Christianity from the outside before we're Christians and we think, yeah, that's what it is. And even many of us who do trust Christ, we still think that's what it is. It's just a behavior modification plan. Like that's what we're driving towards. There's a presence, there's a perversity, and here's the problem. So trust in Jesus and live better. But that's not good news. The truth of the matter is because the law is not good news. Sin in, it, sin in itself is far bigger than that. That what happens is that when sin confuses us to think that it's just doing good things, that we spend the rest of our lives as Christians trusting in Jesus to do good things instead of resting in Jesus and what he's done on our behalf. And then we, too, as Christians, we use the law as evangelism and we never get to good news. And especially those of us in a Reformed, gospel-centered church, what happens is we highlight sin, and it's like, yes, the law says you're a sinner. There's the presence of sin, and we go around saying, you're a sinner. And it's like, well, if I know that I'm a sinner, what, that's, that, that's a part of it, but if I don't know there's a Savior, what does that do? If I know that my sin is deep and there's a perversity of it, but I don't know a Savior, then what does that do? If I understand that the problem of sin is that it's affected all the creation of which I'm a part of to my very deepest bones, and it's affected all that is good as a parasite, but I don't understand the Savior, then what does that do? That's what Paul is trying to say. The issue was never the law because the law could never redeem you. Only Christ could. He's saying the law could give you a diagnosis. This is what's wrong, but it could never heal you. But here's what we do. Look at me. We're good at doing this, Christians. We are really good as humans. We are good at acknowledging the problem. And it's in our humanistic culture that we acknowledge something is wrong. And guess what? We wouldn't even say that we're a, we're a part of it. But the problem is then we try to be the solution without anything changing in us. <laughs> we try to be the solution to the problem that we started without anything changing with us. And that's what we've done since the beginning of the world. I didn't finish the story when I, about my parents and my um, opening up the, the Christmas gifts. Once we opened up those gifts, here's what we did. We thought, uh-oh, we're in trouble. And we, meaning I did it, but I brought my brothers and sisters along with me. And uh, we said, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll get some more wrapping paper. <laughs> Even though we couldn't find the wrapping paper that matched that, none of us had any money. And so we found some other wrapping paper, hoping that my mom wouldn't notice it. And, uh, and on Christmas, we pretended like we didn't know 
that, wow, Super Nintendo? Wow, Mom, that was really good. You know, it was like a kid. It's like, and she knew we were lying the whole time, and she let us go through with it. And then she dealt with us the next day, uh, how we used to do it back in the day. <laughs> and and they're, 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 but here's, here, here's the point I'm trying to make. We sinned, and we made a mistake. And what we tried to do was cover it up, thinking my mom would never know. Where did we get that from? Adam and Eve, when they first sinned, did they run to God and say, God, we did what you asked us not to do? No. They ran to fig leaves and they, they hid. And then they began to blame. And what we do all the time when it comes to our own issues is that we will blame and we will hide. We will try to fix ourselves. And many of us are just limping around when God is providing for us healing. Another way to think of it is, is we've used this before, is that if you go, because you have pain in your leg, you go to the doctor. And the doctor says, let me take the x-ray and let me show you. And he comes back and he says, this is what a healthy leg looks like when it's in place. Um, and then here's what your leg looks like, and it's completely broke. Here's what many of us do. We say thanks for revealing the problem, and then we walk out of there, and we want to let it heal on its own, or we'll try to make it better. And so we all limp around trying to do things on our own instead of resting in Christ. And if any of you guys have ever had a broken bone that you've never gotten placed, you see how bad it is. Um, you can't see my thumbs, but they're terrible. I've broken both my thumbs three times, and I never got it fixed. And now I can't move my thumbs the way that I want to, and so I can't play video games. <laughs> which is a godly thing to not do. Um, I'm joking. But there's, there's this, it, it's not set. Um, but here's, here's, here's what I'm saying is, many of us, we trust in x-ray machines. We trust in the law. We trust in the rules, which can only get you to a point. The law can only point to sin. It can only reveal sin. It can drive you to sin. The law was never meant to redeem. The ultimate purpose of the law is that you would realize that you could never make things right, that it would take another outside of you to come and redeem it. And that's how we're led to this reign of grace in Christ Jesus. Another way to think of it is it's like going to that doctor. And instead of saying, I'm going to walk away with my broken leg, instead of looking at the doctor, the one who can, and saying, can you heal it? And the Bible lets us know that Jesus came into this world to be the great physician. And that when Jesus came into this world, he says, I'm not here for those who actually got it together. Those of you who are healing yourselves on your own, through your philosophy, through your education, through your beauty, through your works, whatever you're doing, through your religion, through your good behavior, all, all of you who are healing yourself on your own, that's fine. But to those of you who acknowledge, no, 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 I see the presence of sin in my life. And I see the perversity and how it grows. And I see the problem. My biggest problem is I'm trying to fix it. Lord, would you heal it? He says, to those, I come to you. I meet with you. We're about to enter into Advent. It is Emmanuel, God is with us to be the Redeemer. The law can point to sin, but only Jesus can redeem it. Amen? Let's pray.